0: Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to the very final episode of Barely Getting By for 2019. And I'm going to start off by saying we really, really are barely getting by today. Um, Emma and I have been beset by technical issues this week, which is why we haven't got our British election update out to people so yet. Um, Also, because it's burning hot in Melbourne today, we're actually doing this at Emma's house. So our production team has very kindly loaned us the portable podcasting equipment. Big risk on their
1: part, I think.
0: I (laughs) I don't know why they trust us so much. Um, We are sitting in Emma's living room. We have baby Viv snuffling over Emma's shoulder. Um, We have a very brightly lit Christmas tree in the corner. Um, So, yeah, we're going to kick this off. It's probably going to be a bit loose, um, but I would say the one... This was intended as a wrap up of the British election last week, but a couple of things have happened in the meantime. First of all, Donald Trump has been impeached. He has. Second of all, J.K. Rowling has been cancelled as of this morning.
1: That's right. That that is big big news for us this morning. J.K. is definitely cancelled.
0: Yes, and we kind of we backed off from talking about J.K. Rowling in our episode about fiction a few weeks ago. I think just because it would have been too time consuming. Yeah. Um. But yeah, J.K. Rowling as of this morning has. Basically, if anyone didn't know it already, outed herself as a trans-exclusionary radical feminist.
1: She absolutely has. JK yeah. is definitely
0: a turf. Yeah. So that's. I look. I think um, the internet already has a lot to say about that, and I think we're also going to talk a little bit about how quickly the internet does jump to have a lot to say about things today in this episode. Yeah. I would just say, you know, for anyone who doesn't who doesn't know about JK Rowling's sudden and un unasked for intervention in um, a court case where a woman was suing basically for unfair dismissal over her extremely bigoted remarks about right. trans women. There's J.K. Rowling, she's stepped in and she's, you know, said, oh, you know, men are men, women are women, blah, blah, blah. I think that my – the disagree, you know, J.K. Rowling can believe what she wants. She doesn't get to be a dickhead about it.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: So in the spirit of – a Christmas and total disorder, we have now been joined by Clara, Emma's elder daughter, who has promised to sit very quietly while we're, while we're recording, but don't be surprised if we get some little interruptions yep. during <laughs> during this session, which will be absolutely welcome, Clara. I'm sitting here smiling at her so she doesn't feel like she's too alienated from this whole process. It's very strange
1: for her too. Um, okay, so British election. That's right. So we left you in the last episode with Chloe's kind of – I guess, loose prediction, historian guess at what might happen. And one of those guesses was a Tory victory, a conser- victory for the Conservatives, but perhaps not by quite as much... No, As they won by in the end, right? No. So, so, Chloe, tell us what happened.
0: So, what, from my perspective or...? Yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, so I had a bit of a shock on Friday morning when that exit poll came out because I think the day before, and I... Uh, Damn it, I'd, I'd put this on radio on everything. I'd said that the Tories were going to have like a twenty to thirty seat majority, and then they came through, and I think they won by about sixty. Yeah, yeah, sixty seats. So it was an absolutely decisive victory for Boris Johnson and his government, and you know it has been seen as a vindication of the position they took to the election, which was that they would get Brexit done. Um, a lot of the media focus in the past week has been on what this means to the Labour Party. And we can talk about that a little bit. Um, But I think one thing I'd like to highlight, which no one seems to be really talking about now, is that Brexit isn't done. Even when Britain leaves the EU on the 31st of January, there are still going to be trade negotiations going on in parallel with the EU and with the US, which I think are going to be much trickier than Boris Johnson likes to make out. A couple of things also about what this election means for Britain is... Boris Johnson went to the elect- went to the electorate with this promise of governing as a One Nation Tory and for those of you who aren't historians who are way too invested in this, um, that means that One Nation Toryism is a strand and a tr- tradition within the Conservative Party that sees the Conservatives as quite a paternalistic party that does look out for things like especially the social welfare of yeah of the public. So for instance, it's in the name of One Nation Toryism that the that the Conservative Party could get behind the NHS when that was when that was formulated in, in the late 1940s. So Boris Johnson went to the electorate this time on you know a One Nation platform. He promised to you know he promised all he made a lot of promises on workers' rights. He's already rowing those back. Okay? Already. Already so the revised withdrawal agreement, which is the you know, basically the transitional arrangements that have to get through Parliament in order for Britain to leave the EU. He has now rode back on what he was promising in October in the version that was voted on earlier with regard to workers' rights. Right, and I guess he can do that because he now has a rock solid majority. Exactly. So he has no need to court disaffected Labour MPs or even the even the Democratic Unionist Party. He has his majority and he'll be able to get through basically any legislation he wants.
1: Okay, and so when when you say a, a kind of one-nation Tory party, that immediately makes me think, you, you know, when they say when you say Conservatives gov- governing for all Britons, it's a certain type of Britain we're talking about, yes. isn't it? Yes,
0: yes, and that's the other side of it, which I, I'm a little bit surprised has gone somewhat under-remarked in the press, I think, because everyone's a bit too scared to address it, and that's race. So during the campaign... Johnson and the Conservatives were definitely definitely pandering to a certain stereotype of working-class Englishness, not Britishness, Englishness, which is, you know, this sort of burly masculine man who works, you know, works a, a manual trade. Okay, the equivalent to the yeah. black auto worker in Detroit. Exactly, trope, yep. yeah, the auto worker in Detroit or the FIFO worker in Queensland. Yep. Um, and while race wasn't necessarily mentioned In the campaign, in fact, the Tories were quite 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 keen to argue that they were they weren't a party of racism because they were using the anti-Semitism smear that's been cast against Jeremy Corbyn throughout the campaign. Race is part of it. So the flip side of that working class stereotype
1: is an other that is not part of Boris Johnson's Britain. Okay, so so is that does that help explain this kind of astounding victory? In part, and I think that. Again, I'm quite glad that we've had all
0: these technical issues this week because it means that I'm probably talking a little bit more calmly and rationally than I would have about five days ago. Um, I think that race is absolutely part of the story and it's a part of the story that has not been dealt with in any detail and I think that people are scared to deal with it at the moment. But then there are the wider issues mainly for the Labor Party, which is how did they lose uh, large
1: sections of the north of England and the Midlands? Okay, because there was supposed to be a kind of red wall that was, you know, unbreakable. Yeah, Is that right.
0: So, red wall. It sounds very Game of Thrones, doesn't it? Does, it does actually. Um, yeah. So when people talk about the the red wall in the north and the Midlands, they're referring to seats that cut across the north, that some of which have you know been held by the Labour Party for fifty to a hundred years. We're talking about seats that include communities that were devastated by Thatcherism, and they were seen. They they very much are, do underpin any potential victory for the Labour Party. And for them, for the Labour Party to lose those seats and also to lose them by such big margins is an existential problem for the Labour Party. So that's kind of what has sparked off this latest round of recriminations that people are probably reading about. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has stepped down, we now have Labour moderates coming out of well he's stepped down, he's he's stepping down, he'll he'll lead the party through until they appoint a new leader. We now have a lot of Labour moderates who, you know, I wouldn't say they've been quiet since Corbyn came to the leadership in 2015, but they they've certainly um, arced up in the past week and condemned him for again his failure to connect with and represent that mytho- that mythological working class voter. Um, so that's kind of, and that's yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. Does that make?
1: Yeah, I think it does, and I mean. Uh- the avalanche of hot takes has kind of focused very much on Corbyn and, and whether or not this is all Corbyn's fault. So what's your take on that?
0: Well, my take on it is that this was a long time in the making. So if we look at any at the decline of Labour's voter share in a lot of these seats, and also I think we need to be very careful not to homogenize. We can't we can't ourselves, you know, stereotype about northern seats. Like the hugely, you know, these are hugely geographically and socially varied parts of England. Labor has been losing vote share for the past twenty years. Okay, okay. so Tony, you know Tony Blair, um, came in in nineteen ninety seven with a really, you know, a huge majority and a really decisive victory. Labor has steadily been losing votes in those areas, and I think part of this is the race is racism, which you know the racism question that we referred to earlier. It's also about the fact that new Labor, so the Labor governments of Blair and Brown, they governed. More and more, they did good things, but they also governed for the metropolitan centre. They, you know, their whole their whole pitch to the electorate was that they could be a Labour Party, so you know, be a representative of the working class, but they could also appeal to middle class professionals. And what that means is that there are huge parts of Britain that have been left behind, and Labour has been losing votes there in in those seats for 20 years, and. So we can't we can't look at this like it was Corbin himself, Corbin who lost those votes. It's the Labor Party, it's the Labor Party in its totality that has really stuffed
1: up here. Okay, so so you would separate the kind of personality from the policies.
0: I look, and I think. I think this is where the media becomes important. So, yeah, I think, what, again, what a lot of people have been saying is that Jeremy Corbyn, his personality is toxic to the electorate. So he, you know, the people just didn't like him and that's because he's not cut from the same professional cloth as a more electable – I'm putting scare quotes here um, – a more electable leader like, say, a Tony Blair. But – What that ignores is, again, I'm going to come back to it because nobody is saying this, racism. So the Mm -hmm. fact that Corbyn has a reputation as someone who does, who is an internationalist, who does fight for people who have, for the dispossessed of the world, for people who have been left behind by imperialism and capitalism. So, you know, whether it's supporting the Irish, the, the Irish Republican struggle or it's supporting Palestine, Corbyn is an advocate for people who are dispossessed, and there is a strong strain of racism, and people rejecting him on that basis, which often gets cloaked in you know this argument that Corbyn is not a patriot. But there's also the media, and the media has been, the British media, and I'm talking about the BBC. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about, of course, the tabloid press in the UK, which we know is notorious for, you know, I guess pushing the truth, stretching the truth. That's a gentle way of putting it, I think. Yeah, really gentle way of putting it. I'm clearly much calmer than I was last week because I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't this this cool and collected. Um, so the media, also social media, obviously, they're pushing these really toxic attack lines against Corbyn and a lot of those have been absorbed by the electorate. So if you read some of the accounts that are, that are coming out on Twitter, and this is something where I think Twitter is quite useful, from people who were on the doorstep knocking on the doors of potential Labor voters Um they're saying that people were just repeating these attack lines that were coming out of the media verbatim, yeah, and okay. which says a lot
1: about how powerful that message was. Yeah, and, and maybe sort of how much we, um, very much implicating myself here, underestimate how disengaged voters absorb those messages. You know, people who sort of aren't that particularly engaged in politics and in the day-to-day like we yeah. are, how kind of insidious those messages are. Yeah,
0: disen- yeah disengaged voters, but also voters who have been left behind by neoliberalism they are people who don't you know who economically don't have much or don't have much we're talking about people who don't have much opportunity um i think i think there is probably in time when we have a lot more information and everyone has kind of cooled their jets and is ready to look at this in a more sober way there are going to be a lot of parallels between what happened in the north of england and what happened in america when trump was elected
1: Unfortunately, I think you're you're right about that, and I think the the result in the UK is is already having kind of reverberations in the US and also here. I know you've been really struck by by the way it's kind of arguments are now playing out in the Australian Labor Party about the result. Yeah, so I think I look, we'll get to America in a second, but I think that some of the the
0: early takes on what the British election means for Australia. On both sides, so you know we can talk about the Chris Ulmans in the world, like Chris Ulman, who yeah, he wrote a really egregious editorial, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald a few a few days ago, and he was banging on which about
1: which we're latte. not going to link to. Yeah,
0: he was banging <laughs> on about latte civism, whatever. Um, but even progressives are taking very straightforward lessons from what happened in the UK last week. And saying, oh, yeah, no, this is, this, is, this is exactly what happened to Bill Shorten in May 2019. We had a, you know, an unpopular leader who presented the electorate with a barrage of policies that had no real narrative behind them that were too much for the electorate to take in. And, you know, so the same thing has happened. So the lesson that in the UK, so the lesson that we must take is replace your unpopular leader, get better at your messaging. But the problems are much deeper than that.
1: They absolutely are. And I think, I mean, you, you outline them quite clearly when you talk about the north of England and the kind of neoliberal decimation of those economies and societies, which also applies here, I think, maybe, maybe not to the same extent, mm. but, but to take your only lesson to be, you have to have an elect, an electable leader, I think is quite concerning. What does that mean?
0: What does that an electable, exactly. what does an electable leader mean? Because, and I, I definitely don't think that the centre has the
1: answers no absolutely it doesn't and and i think you and know hillary
0: clinton didn't win
1: exactly and that that's where my real concern is because exactly the same arguments are playing out in the democratic party in the us in terms of you know what what lessons and i again scare quotes what lessons we can draw from the uk election and it's that same argument about electability which is already a big concern amongst the democratic primaries you know in some in some polling i've seen people will kind of nominate their preferred nominees. So they would say, well, I would personally prefer Biden, sorry, I would personally prefer Sanders or Warren, but I think Biden is more electable. So you have this really interesting phenomenon where people are kind of worried about what this mythical white working class voter in Detroit or Michigan thinks, rather than kind of what you want as a voter. And it, it has really interesting effects, I think. And that's my real concern, because while there may be like actual legitimate lessons to come out of the UK that are relevant to the US. It's more about how those lessons play out kind of in people's minds. And so this idea that you have to have this electable leader who's a centrist, you know, you can't be too progressive because you can't bring voters with you. That's the big lesson that this, the so-called centrists are taking out of this, then becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where you you decide that this is what you've got to do in order to win which in turn means means you're decimated once again much like Hillary Clinton was you know offering a kind of centrist platform and I personally think, you know, if someone like Biden, who's the obvious centrist candidate, is nominated, the same thing happens again because centrists don't have anything to offer those disaffected voters either. So, it's not about the actual lessons, but how the pers- the kind of perception of the lessons plays yeah.
0: out. Yeah, and also second-guessing voters rather than listening to them, you know. And for exactly. all the horrible things all the horrible again, I'm saying it, racist things that voters will say, still not listening to them and not actually strategizing around what people are actually saying.
1: Exactly, and I think changing minds and bringing yeah. people with you, you know, that that, that work is hard and it takes a long time. Yeah, you know. and
0: look, and I think that the biggest concern is that we don't have time. So,
1: no, twenty twenty election don't. is now just around the corner. Exactly, and I, I think that's the kind of really scary thing because, I mean, certainly Trump and even Morrison are taking heart from Boris Johnson's victory, seeing seeing parallels in their own political fortunes. And you know we've got another five years of of Tories in the UK who are who are not you know while they're better on climate than conservatives here you know that it's not their priority they're not kind of particularly worried yeah. about and climate also, action
0: and also Britain is a fairly small like, diplomatically they're a big player but in terms of emissions they're not
1: exactly yeah. that's right that's exactly right you know the US potentially four and up for five more years of Trump the same here you know unless the ALP get the act together their act together which doesn't seem like it's going to be a thing that happens you know we're looking at kind of five more years of conservative governments in the western world which means no no substantial action on climate just like we've seen in the last couple of weeks at the UN um, at the COP summit which basically collapsed which is is pretty terrifying because as you say we don't we don't have time we can't afford to wait five yeah. years
0: and i think I, I was thinking about this because you know we we do have a tendency to be a bit negative on this podcast <laughs> and i was trying to think of something positive we could take about this and I don't want to. I don't want us to say that that you know the hard patient work of building up a progressive majority shouldn't happen. Um, but I think that if that does take time, if that takes five years or ten years, then we're not going to be with regard to climate. We're not going to be looking at a scenario where we're trying to we're trying to save. Like we're not, we're, not okay. looking, we're not looking at a, a scenario where we're trying to mitigate the very worst of climate change. We're actually going to be looking for a progressive adaptation to climate change. I think that's probably the reality of it, and that's the difference. Yeah, so it's absolutely. not worth not. It's not worth us giving up. We still have no, to keep working. Not. But we're not going to be looking at in five or ten years' time. We're not going to be looking at how do we stop four degrees? We're going to, you know, a four degree temperature rise. We're going to be looking at how do we
1: live with that. And how do we have a just and equitable way of living with that? Exactly. And I think being increasingly increasingly aware of the rise of things like eco-fascism, which is what, what I think we're already seeing, where conservatives and the kind of far right pivot from outright climate denialism to basically a, a fascist approach, which focuses on immigration fight like stopping migration the kind of idea of climate refugees and kind of locking down borders which we know is already happening and will increasingly happen I think as the as the right turns to a kind of eco-fascism which is both terrifying but something that we need to to fight against and I think you're right about that's the that kind of shift in strategy that we need yeah I think
0: this is probably a good time to move on to talking about impeachment fun happy a merry impeachment is that what you're yep, saying merry, merry impeachments everybody impeachmas. okay so m i've been so consumed with british stuff and getting over my heartbreak um really haven't caught up with impeachment so tell me what's what's happened what's changed in the last couple of days
1: so actually nothing has really changed in a in a weird turn of events actually exactly what we thought would happen has gone ahead and happened which is which is not a thing that we can say very often at the moment but basically the house of representatives so the lower house has voted on the articles of impeachment so there were there were two articles impeaching Donald Trump. The first was for abuse of office, so the whole Ukraine phone scandal thing, and the second is obstruction of Congress, so Trump's refusal to comply with subpoenas, you know, refusing to allow people to testify, that kind of thing. So the House voted on those two articles, which were were pretty basic to be honest, you know, they they there is an argument that they could have gone harder and picked a number of other things to to add to the articles of impeachment, but they decided to go kind of fairly straightforward and simple. Both of those were passed easily by by significant majorities in fact I'm pretty sure I saw that it was the you know the highest vote share for articles of impeachment ever not that we have a huge data set to go off um, so Trump has been officially impeached he's only the third president it's ever happened to go back to Johnson in the 1800s and then Nixon of course, wasn't impeached because they never got to a vote. He resigned first. And Bill Clinton was impeached by the House as well. So he's, he is only the third president in history that this has happened to, which makes it very significant from a historical yeah. point of view. Like it's a big deal to impeach a president. I think I've said this before, you know, we don't necessarily appreciate what a big deal it is from here where we are pretty happy to just kind of off prime ministers fairly regularly. It's a, it's a pretty different system and that office is held in, in – I guess, really high regard and it's become a kind of almost godlike like status now. So it's a big deal. But at the same time, while it's kind of historically significant, I don't know that this actually changes anything. Yeah,
0: because to cut a long story short, and I've seen a lot of infographics coming out of what, you know, saying, oh, what happens if Trump, if this goes on to the Senate, blah, blah, blah. The Senate is not going to impeached is not going to – is what's the term? Is it convict So or re- remove him from
1: remove office. Remove him from office.
0: Yeah, so yeah. he has been impeached and now it's up to the Senate to remove exactly. him from office if they find guilty. So, I'm, I'm keen I'm interested in the terminology here because yeah, people so, keep likening it to a court case.
1: It is effectively a court case. So the the Senate runs a trial. The senators become jurors, for want of a better word, and the the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court oversees the whole affair. John Roberts, who's kind of been seen as this as a swing vote, which is a kind of interesting little, addendum, I think. But but having said that. The leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, has basically said he's not going to he's not going to run a proper trial. He's already decided the president is not guilty. Um, Lindsey Graham, who's another really prominent Republican senator, has said he's not going to be a fair juror. Just just outright said it. So the Senate isn't in, isn't the slightest bit interested in running a proper trial. They won't. They're not going to call witnesses or anything like that. They want it over with as quickly as possible. So the Senate will, you know. Barring a a very dramatic shift in events, which, of course, I'm not ruling out, um, the Senate will just let him off um, and he can then go ahead and talk about how he's been exonerated. So,
0: yeah, the other thing I'm interested in is the timing of this and how this fits into the 2020 election cycle. So So when will this trial take place?
1: So at the moment, they're saying it'll happen in January. So it'll be over really quickly, which then frees up, I guess, it frees up the Republicans and Trump to start campaigning. That's
0: that's what really concerns me. So it's not going to happen. Trump comes out of it. Trump will say he's been vindicated. Yep. And that does that, that gives him a free run.
1: I th- I think it kind of does, and and a lot of people have been making this argument to say that you know it allows Trump to talk about the witch hunt, to talk about how he's been exonerated and the do nothing Democrats are wasting everybody's time, etc., which sets him up for a re-election campaign. I think, and and we've seen already it's it's energizing the base. He held a huge rally in in Michigan. As the, as the vote was being held and he's run, he's practising running all these lines about the Democrats and, and what they're trying to do to him, you know, that it's a coup, they're trying to take down a duly elected president, blah, 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 which, you know, is kind of good fodder for an election campaign. So a lot of people are saying that the Democrats have kind of pulled the trigger too early, that they should have kept it in the House yeah. where they could control the narrative, you know, keep calling witnesses, keep this kind of slow drip of evidence, et cetera, et cetera, whereas now what they've done is hand that narrative over to the Senate.
0: Yeah, so, so that was an option available to the Democrats. The Democrats could have drawn this out.
1: Absolutely. They could have kept calling witnesses basically for as long as they, as they like. So the, the impeachment um, proceedings against Nixon, for example, went on for ages. Like I think it was more like 12 months that this trial – sorry, not trial. The investigation by the House went on um, and that allows you, as I said, to kind of control that narrative to keep the headlines – Coming from the House rather than coming from the Senate, in and and as we know, the media will treat this as a kind of both sides argument. So the the narrative coming out of the Senate will be treated as with the same weight coming as it is coming out of these investigations. When you know, we know one side is a kind of looser with the truth than than the other, yeah. which is a kind of mild way of putting it, I guess. But so so what what's the Democrat
0: strategy here? What are they? Why have they gone? to impeach? Why have they moved to impeach so quickly? Uh,
1: to be honest, I don't, I don't quite know the answer. And I think, you know, I would say people have underestimated Nancy Pelosi before and, and she is a consummate politician and political strategist. So I'm not going to say that she's messed this up because I don't know that that's the case. I don't, I don't think that's even necessarily the case. I think the strategy is to get it over with and focus on a focus on election campaigning, to, to allow the focus to shift to to the Democrats and to policies. I think there's there's concern amongst Democrats that you can't just win by not being Trump and by focusing on Trump's corruption, you have to offer voters something else, which goes back to exactly what you were saying about the kind of neoliberal decimation of huge parts of the electorate in the US and focusing on what people actually need. So talking about things like healthcare um, and climate action, and and appealing to voters in that way, rather than on the kind of, I guess you know, for want of a better word, the kind of battles in, in the political swamp, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, so then that brings me to the democratic the democratic candidate and who's going to win that race. How does this play into that? Because I mean, I'm, I, the, the the democratic party still seems to be treating Joe Biden as the presumptive candidate.
1: Yeah, well, polling certainly is. Biden is still is still ahead in the polls, and I've said this before. You know, I wouldn't, I never trust polls, but especially don't trust these kind of polls because I I don't think they can be accurate. But I think part of you know I think it suits other um not other candidates to talk about issues. You know, Warren, Sanders. All of them, I think, want to talk about more than just Trump. That's, you know, if you look at the debates at, that we've had, they don't, they, I mean, they of course they talk about Trump and they've all talked about how he needs to be impeached. They're all in favour of impeachment, etc. But they want to talk more about things like healthcare and gun reform.
0: Yeah, see, what strikes me as odd about this approach from the Democrats, and, you know, assuming that we're talking about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, so the Democratic leadership who yep. are hostile to candidates like Sanders and Warren. So if their strategy is to... Get impeachment out of the way, even if it doesn't work, so they can clear, uh, clear the air, so that they can, so the Democratic candidate can talk about policy. That's not, that's not Joe Biden's strong suit, and that's not something that Joe Biden will be able to do, is it? Because the whole Ukraine allegation is about Joe Biden.
1: Exactly. And he's, he's avoided talking about it, I think, as much as he possibly can. And I suppose the hope is that if the Senate trial is over quickly, that will that issue will kind of fade from the headlines. I don't know that it will. I don't know that Trump and his supporters will allow it to fade from the headlines. And we know, you know, what a master Trump is at controlling headlines and feeding in new headlines. So I think it will be really interesting to see how it feeds into to the Democrats strategy, but it does sort of beg the question of you know why pursue impeachment if you're not going to kind of go the whole hog and and keep going I Pelosi's answer to that I think would be that she said specifically Trump left us no choice and it is the right thing to do. And I, I mean I certainly think that is true. you know you can't if this is not impeachable conduct, then what is, you know, where do you draw the line?
0: Yeah, and I think I think what strikes me as strange about that, because I'm, I'm with you, I've always, I've thought all along that impeachment is the right thing to do if you have any investment in, in sorry, no, I am going to say British democracy, but we're not talking about Britain for once. Um, if you have any investment in American democracy and American democratic institutions, impeachment is the right thing to do to defend those institutions, right?
1: Absolutely, I think it absolutely but is.
0: It was, that's... Nancy Pelosi, my my impression was that she was rejecting that line of argument. She was saying that impeachment was, you know, for a long time, she was saying that impeachment was a pragmatic matter. It wasn't a matter of, you know, defending democracy. It was about how do we best oppose Trump. Mm. So she's now flipped back to to the I guess the yes, yeah, so to the less political the less pragmatic, less political stance, which is, you know, the idealistic stance, which is, you know, we need to impeach Trump. Mm. But she's For someone who's such a political must, she's not playing the politics well because she's not dragging it out. Like it's it, – it does that – yeah, it's kind of twisted and weird and I don't. Yeah. I don't
1: quite know what she's doing. Look, it's a complete mess. Like It is an absolute mess. And I think it's probably representative of an, a fight that's going on within opposition to Trump, which is about how to deal with him. You know, do you go the kind of cold political strategy that's about electi- uh, electability and the kind of strategy of Im- impeachment or do you focus on the question of, of morality and what is right? And I don't think anybody – Has the answer. And and part of the problem with trying to do both at once, which seems like what Pelosi is trying to do, is it gets messy and confused. And we've talked about the problem with messy and confused messages as well, especially for a disengaged electorate.
0: Yes, and and a very disaggregated electorate. So an electorate that is divided, which is another of the lessons of the British election, is that there are lots, there are many electorates. And stitching them together, as a progressive stitching them together, into something that
1: can win an election is a really difficult ask. Hugely difficult, and I think when you add in the U.S. context, extreme gerrymandering where seats are manipulated to to suit Oh Johnson certain Johnson's doing that in the UK now. Oh, cool! Because yeah. yeah. again, he's got that majority that he can do that, um, and also voter suppression. You know, you add and there's been there have been renewed efforts even just this week at voter suppression in some states. You add all of that together, and building political coalitions is incredibly difficult.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've kind of touched on 2020 and because this is our last episode for the year, we will be coming back next year, I think. In some form. In some form. In some form. We're very keen for feedback on what we've done this year and what people would like to hear more of from us. 2020, I'm going to be mean to you because you're always mean to me. You're always (laughs) asking me for unfair predictions from history. What do you think happens in 2020 in the US? Oh, my goodness.
1: Um, uh, Well, I'm going to hedge as much as I possibly can, because honestly, who knows? Um, I do think if the impeachment trial goes the way we think it's going to go, it will kind of disappear from the headlines very quickly. Um, You know, kind of by the end of January, we will have moved on. There will be a huge amount of focus on the Democrats and, and their internal fight about who is nominated. By the looks of things that you know, it could go down to the wire. So we won't know officially we won't have a candidate until the middle of the year, until July. We may know before then on kind of Super Tuesday in in March. And and I think that, again, much like the UK, UK election, we'll have reverberations all over the place. The, the Labor Party here might be looking to see if they, you know, if they nominate, nominate a progressive or a, a centrist candidate. I don't think Biden can do it. I... I I think he's, you know, he's increasingly scattered. His campaign strategy is kind of all over the place. Um, so I don't think he can do it. I don't know about Sanders. You know, I think the, the established Democratic Party establishment is very scared of people like Sanders and, and Warren. That's why people like Mike Bloomberg are, are nominating themselves because they're worried about their cashola. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even willing to predict who's going to win that nomination. I'm not, I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> I'll be watching very closely. Okay. We'll be watching very closely. Yeah, yeah. so I haven't <laughs> even answered what I think is going to happen in 2020. I do think Trump gets more unhinged. I, I, don't, I don't think there's more? a scenario. Yeah. Mm. I don't think there's a scenario in which he, you know, gets better rather than worse. I think if no. when, <laughs> when he's, again, scare quotes, um, exonerated by the Senate, what, what is there to stop do him?
0: Do you think, I think this is an interesting question for 2020. Do you think the media stops treating him like a rational actor?
1: No, <laughs> I, I think we've, you know, a num- we've been hoping for that for, for a long time and, and the media is still grappling with, with how to treat him. Um, no, I don't think they stop treating him like a, a rational actor. I think they keep fact-checking him wh- even when he's saying, like, just totally m- weird stuff. Like, now you have to push a dishwasher button 12 times. He said that the other day. He's got this thing about how many times you have to flush a toilet. Like, it, it is, I think it's getting more unhinged than that the president talking about how many times you flush the toilet. Yes.
0: Look, yep. I, okay, okay. So I think that's your, your one yep. certain prediction is Trump gets more unhinged. Yep. Great. Right?
1: Yep. Yay. Okay, your turn because I'm always mean to you so I'm going to be mean again. What What happens in the UK in okay. 2020?
0: Well, Britain leaves the EU on the 31st of January. I think that's the easy one. Uh, I think the, it's going to be really interesting to watch over the next year what happens in those trade negotiations with the EU. So okay. Boris Johnson has committed – and I think – I can't I, – I'm still trying to keep up if he's trying to put into legislation or if he has put into legislation that that will – you know, that, that those negotiations will be concluded by the end of the year.
1: The end of 2020. The end of 2020. Okay, so this is, this is formulating – is this the trade deal or formulating the whole relationship between the UK and the EU?
0: Uh, again, I'm going to have to look that up and put it in the show notes because that's – yeah, but that's – look, it's been – I know it's gone so far as the political promise – to have the have a deal with the EU by the end of the year, which is something that he can leave somewhat deliberately vague, um, I think even getting a trade deal in that time is going to be an absolute nightmare. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, the getting EU, the remaining EU states to agree to a position before yeah. then is. Yeah. I think Britain's going to. I think Britain is going to find itself in a very weak position in those negotiations because. It has, first of all, it's a very it's a very small economy compared with the might of the EU. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it doesn't actually have the expertise for trade negotiations because it actually devolved all those functions to the EU when it joined the EU in the 1970s. So I think that will be very interesting to watch. I also think that the the concurrent trade negotiations that they're going to be conducting with the US will be very interesting because the US and the EU are going to want very different things from Britain. And they're not at all compatible. So the EU insists that if if Britain wants to retain access to the single market, which is economically kind of the optimal position for Britain, then they're going to have to abide by the EU's rules on the level playing field, which is basically saying that the UK has to have the same environmental standards, the same work, you know, the same um, standards for workers' rights, all sorts of protections and legislation in place in order for, for it to get that deal from the EU America doesn't want
1: that. Yeah, America wants the opposite.
0: America wants exactly the opposite. It wants it wants unlimited access for its products and yeah, for its products and its standards which are significantly lower than the EU's. So, I think that Boris Johnson is in for a really rough ride as prime minister in 2020. I mean, I'm not wishing ill on the UK, but I certainly, you know, it, it could be quite satisfying to see him unravel in those in those things. But that's yeah, the you know, last bit of my vindictiveness <laughs> <laughs> <That's allowed. laughs> after this week's dramas. Um, yeah, so I think I think everyone needs to keep an eye on that. That's really important. Um, and we'll also have ramifications for Australia because we'll also be conducting. Uh, trade negotiations. We are conducting trade negotiations with the EU, so looking to a free trade That's trade right. agreement with the EU. And Britain definitely wants to fast-track negotiations with us now they're leaving the EU. So in a weird way, we might stand to benefit?
1: Po- uh, I mean, possibly. I think more, more likely we would from a trade agreement with the uk and and i imagine that the morrison government sees itself much more closely aligned with the tory yeah government than, than the eu and it look there's already rumblings about their eu that free trade agreement with the eu and the eu's climate provisions that you can't possibly include those etc so yeah, i've been
0: reading some very interesting tweets from a number of
1: eu diplomats yeah yeah they're, they're not they're, happy with us no and no. you know rightly I. so yeah. Exactly. Um, And I think that will only escalate, especially as right wing commentators get a hold of exactly what the EU is trying to to get into this agreement. So I think focus will shift to Britain. And I I mean, I guess economically we might benefit from that. But really, uh, most of the research shows that the economic benefits of free trade agreements are pretty minimal. You know, yeah. in terms of like their overall well, benefit, like yeah. of course, there are specific yeah. sectors that benefit and specific people, but mostly that, well, it's know, not the gonna, rest of us don't say that.
0: It's not going to get us out of the imminent mess that we're in, which I think you know if, from our perspective and from the perspective of the last you know how many episodes of this podcast has been um climate change. So exactly. you know the biggest the biggest threats facing the world today, I think, are climate change. And the far right, yep. and a trade no trade agreement is going to solve those. So oh, oh I've descended into pessimism again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh it all it always happens. But I mean for me that's what you know. 2019 it has been bookended by fires. You know, we, we ended last year in California with some of the worst fires there in history in the, with the Paradise fires. 85 people died, and we're ending this year with most of our country on fire. You yeah, know, that and is that is the year that was and probably the year that is to come. Yeah,
0: and I think, you know, the one thing to look out for as we end 2019 is to see whether that, that brings about the transformative political moment that we've been waiting for for a long time. Fingers Which, crossed. Fingers crossed. All right, so I think we might leave it here because I'm, I'm here with a baby in my arms and I'm sweating like a pig. <laughs> it's 40 degrees outside, hot baby.
1: Like
0: Yeah, yeah, I think think we're going to wrap it up there. So thank you so much for listening to us. Um, We also want to do a big shout out to our production team. So to Sarah, who usually sits in the studio with us, nodding along patiently and correcting our errors. Um, To Amelia and Darcy, who helped us out in the first instance and everyone who's been on this journey with us
1: absolutely and a big shout out to Amelia as well who has just had her own little baby feminist Matilda Joan was born a couple of weeks ago so congratulations to Amelia and big sister Grace as well Thanks again for listening to the Barely Getting By podcast and thanks to RMIT University for hosting and producing us. As we said, we'll be back next year in some form and we really would love you to get in touch, as Chloe said, to tell us what you liked or didn't like about the podcast and if there's anything in particular you'd like us to talk more about next year. So until then, Merry impeachments and Happy New Year.